The sermon text this morning is Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When I was dating Carol, we, um, she wanted me to go to these Christian concerts and Christian conferences. And because I liked her and I was interested in her, I was going to them. And um, I remember in particular one where uh, a very jovial man, and I mean that in the fullest sense of the word, kind of a cherub kind of guy, he, um, he came up and wanted to hug me with the love of the Lord and asked me if I was saved. And I remember arrogantly <coughs> thinking, I want to be saved from you at this point. That's what I'd like to be saved from. And, and how arrogant I was that, that even in a Christian upbringing, or kind of a Christian upbringing, I, I wasn't familiar with the term, to be saved. It, it wasn't a term, it was really a term that I made maybe fun of. It was a bit, I, I mocked it, I... Uh, I spoke of it with derision about being saved. And, and yet, as time presses and passes, I realize that it's really what the Bible is about. God redeeming a people for himself, saving a people for himself. It's, it's clearly the, the point of Romans. We saw last week in Romans chapter 116, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For for in it, that is in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the just will live by faith. That Paul's writing to this church in Rome and he's saying, this is how we're made right with God. This is the theme of the book. And, and then Paul goes right, as I, as I shared with you, he goes right into, in the 18th verse, all the way through the end of chapter 3, and he explains why we need to be saved. That every one of us, Jew or Gentile, religious, irreligious, they all have fallen short of the glory of God, that they need to be reconciled to God. It was only me and my arrogance that thought I was somehow in the clear with God. And then Paul moves right into chapter 4 of Romans, and he says this isn't a New Testament idea of being made right with God through faith. Abraham and David are examples in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he explains, hey, this is how you're now to live your life by faith. You have peace with God, so enjoy God. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he talks about, listen, just because you're walking by faith doesn't mean you're going to not struggle with sin. And so he speaks to us in chapter 6 and 7 how to, how to fight sin. And chapter 8 is that great chapter where we're introduced to the Spirit of God that fills us and enables us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and that we'll never be separated from his love. 
So here, God, in these first eight chapters, is a great God seeking to save. Well, chapter 9 comes along, and of course the question comes up, well, if he's a great God that saves, what about the Jews? Why don't they believe? Hey, they were God's chosen people. Has God's word failed? Has God's promise to save somehow fallen, fallen apart? And of course we learn that Paul said no. Not all Israel belongs to Israel. God, for his own sovereign and good purposes, has drawn some from Israel to save. A remnant he has drawn to save. So here we're in chapter 9 trying to explain about this, how the Israel saved. And Paul's saying, no, 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 not all Israel belonged to Israel. No, he, he has for his own purposes chosen some to be saved. Well, then we might think, well, then what does it matter what we do? I mean, if God's sovereign and he's got this plan, are we just spectators? Are we just sitting in the bleachers kind of watching the whole thing unfold? And he says, no, in chapter 10, Paul says, you've got a responsibility. And that's why last week, you know, there's a right path, there's a wrong path. And there's clearly a wrong path to approach God by trying to establish your own righteousness after what he's done for us in Christ is a wrong path. It's going down the Autobahn in the wrong way. He says, no, you don't establish your own righteousness. You come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to explain right here about this faith. How do we secure this faith? How do, how do we come to God in this faith? And so I'm just going to march us right down the text. How do we come to God to attain that righteousness that puts us in good standing? That's really the question. How do we attain a righteousness so that God looks upon us with favor? Well, look with me at verse 5, because the first thing we're going to see is that first, first we have to repent of a establishing our own righteousness. We have to repent of trying. It's, it's intuitive to all of us that we think we've got to bring something to the table. Look with me in 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So he's talking about a righteousness based on performance of the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So I think what Paul's doing here is he's quoting Leviticus 18 from, from chapter 18. And he's saying, listen, if you want to try to establish a righteousness with God based upon your performance of the law, you better do it, and you better do it well. If you want to try to establish some good standing with God by the merits of your godliness or religiosity, you better do a really good job, and you better complete all of them. And not just outwardly, right? Some of us think, well, I haven't committed murder, so I'm not really a murderer. I haven't committed adultery, so I'm not really an adulterer. Well, Jesus reveals to us the true depth of God's law and the incredible, staggering nature of his holiness when he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've looked upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed it. The same thing with murder. Now, is there anyone here among us that hasn't sinned against God, at least in their heart? Is there anyone among us that is without sin? And Paul's point is that you cannot attain a righteousness. Repent of efforts to try to secure favor with God through your religion or through your performance of religion. Paul says in Galatians, interesting, in Galatians chapter 3, he quotes the same, he quotes the same verse from Leviticus 18 to teach the church at Galatia. He says this, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. 
for the righteous shall live by faith. No one is justified. Why? Because no one can keep it. Even James says this in chapter, in chapter 2. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That, that's, that's us. Israel missed that. Have you made the same mistake? Do we think that we can do it? I, I think we're called to repent. Uh, otherwise, here's what I would, here's what I would, I'd paint you a picture. Uh, to think that we'll stand before God and somehow argue our case, it, it's like you representing yourself in a court of law. And you're going to go before this heavenly tribunal and you're going to say, no, no, God, th this is what I did for you. And these are all the things that I didn't do. How do you think that meeting will go? I mean, can you imagine? You can't present evidence because he knows everything. You can't explain the nuances of a situation because he even knows your motivations of your heart. How is that going to go? I think the warning is that we have a tendency to slip into self-justification. We think, well, if he knew this and if he knew that, then he'd understand why I haven't done it perfectly. It, you know, it, it, the self-justifying powers that we have, you know, if we're late for a meeting and we're flying down 540, we can justify because we don't want to hold other people up. And we've got a meeting to go to, and this is a really important meeting. If we're not going to a meeting and we're driving the speed limit and someone else comes barreling past us, we challenge them for being a, they're a hazard on the road. What are they doing? Don't they care about anybody else? We can do the same thing and find justification for ourselves. And, and that's what we think we're going to do with God. And I just want to warn us that, that stepping into the faith begins by us repenting of our own self-righteousness, by repenting of our own self-salvation, by repenting of our own sense of worth and value. Because we're not just susceptible to self-justification, but we're also susceptible to self-deception. You're just natural to humanity is an overinflated opinion of our own goodness. We, we, we just, and probably it comes because we get to choose those with whom we compare ourselves. And the reality is God does not grade on a curve. It doesn't work like horseshoes and hand grenades. If you just get close, you're going to be in good shape. You know, we deceive ourselves, and it's really looking at ourselves like looking at a circus mirror. You cannot get a good, accurate, it's hard to get a good, accurate representation of who you are. R.C. Sproul wrote these words once, and they just stuck in my mind. Uh, but, but he says that man-centered humans are just amazed that God should withhold joy and life from us. And yet the God-centered Bible is just amazed that God should withhold judgment from us. It's a different perception. There's only one man who lived according to God's law perfectly for God's glory, joyful obedience, and it's Christ. It's hazardous to think that you will make a way on your own to God. That's what Paul's saying, that the person who does the commandments, you better live by them. Otherwise, we repent. This is the step to becoming a Christian, repenting of our own godliness, repenting of our own efforts to somehow think that we're going to please God. If we're going to ride anybody's coattails, it's got to be the one who kept the law. And that's what we see in verses 6 to 10. This is what Paul's doing, teaching us. He says, first, repent of your religion. And then secondly, he says, receive by faith 
the gift of Christ, received by faith the gift of Christ. Notice in 6 to 10, these are very confusing verses, he says, but the righteousness based on faith, you see the contrast there with verse 5, where in verse 5 he says, he writes about a righteousness based on law, but now look in 6, there's a righteousness based on faith, says don't say in your head, who will ascend into heaven? that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Well, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what Paul's doing there, he's going back to Moses, he's going back to Deuteronomy now. This is what many theologians call a midrash, where you take various scriptures, in this case from Deuteronomy, and you add a little bit of your own explanation. What Paul's basically saying here is, don't think for a moment, that you have the capacity to somehow go into heaven to earn God's favor or to go into the abyss to somehow pay for your own sins. He said you can't do it. One's already done it for you. Christ has come down to dwell among us, to live perfectly, and then to go to death, the grave, and to be raised for us. In other words, this is the word. Jesus is the word made flesh. This is the word that is near to us. You don't have to strive to go to God. He has already come to you. He's come to you to live among his creation, to save them. This is the word of faith that Paul proclaimed. This is the gospel. The gospel that God has come among us to die for us, to save us, to draw us back to himself. That's the gospel. Paul's saying this is the word of faith. This is what you're called to believe. Notice in verse 9, he gives us the content of this gospel. He, he kind of breaks it down. He reduces it for us. He says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This is the content of the gospel two things about jesus listen these aren't two steps to salvation that we're making it's two parts of one whole first confessing that jesus is the lord there's a lot being said right there uh, there's a lot of jesus's out there if you ask people what do you think about jesus everybody's quick to tell you what their version of jesus is well paul's telling us the real version the true version he says that he is the Lord. We have to get the identity of Christ right. He is not some emissary. He is not some ambassador. He is not some servant just doing a job. He's the Lord. Now, the Greek word that is used for Jesus here is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament over 6,000 times. It can have a range of meanings, this word, but it overwhelmingly is used for the name of God. In other words, Paul's saying that you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, full, through and through, sovereign over all. I mean, he is God. He, he is not simply one to save us. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is God himself. C.E. Cranfield was a great New Testament scholar in Britain, uh, just died a number of years ago, but really the bulk of his ministry was in the, in the um, 20th century. And he writes these words, he says, Jesus shares the name, the nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty, the eternity of the one and only God. But then he says this, 
And there is expressed in addition, in other words, to that name, Lord, there is expressed in addition the sense of ownership of those who acknowledge him. There's a difference there. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that he owns me. He's my king. I owe him everything. This is different than just believing that he died for my sins. He's God in the flesh who owns me. That's, that's a big confession. But not just do we confess that with our mouth. We believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now, why Paul said that? He could have said a lot of things about Jesus. But I think that little phrase, God raised him from the dead, that encompasses his coming in the flesh, his living a sinless life, his dying, atoning, full atonement for sins, his being buried, his being raised, ascended. And his resurrection has vindicated all of the things that he said. He is who he is because he's been raised from the dead. So, so when, when, when we repent of our own efforts at righteousness, we then receive the gift that comes to us through Christ, who is the Lord, who has paid for our sins and been raised now, seated at the right hand of God. That is what we confess. That is what we believe. That is the gospel, and that's how we're saved. Now, when I say that we're to believe this, let me try to knock down a few counterfeit faiths that come up. A few things that I think masquerade as faith, but are not true faith. And, and, and one would be this. The idea that faith is simply believing, that, um, simply accepting Jesus in my heart. I prayed that I accepted Jesus in my heart. Uh, let me say to you that while the intent of many of us who use that expression or who have used it, and particularly with kids, we like to bust that out, I, I would just caution its, youth, its use. The reason is, is, number one, it really hasn't been used in the church for more than probably 50 or 60 years. Uh, Theologians in the past have talked about Jesus in our heart, but not accepting Jesus in our heart as a means of, of entering the faith. The, the reason I would caution its use is because I think it's reductionistic. You know, what, reduction, what reductionistic is, is we're reducing something beyond its true meaning. We're trying to simplify it so far that it actually loses connection to what it actually represents. And to just think that salvation is an act where I ask Jesus to be in my heart makes singular what really is continual. If I'm confessing that Jesus is the Lord, he has all my life forever. He has all my commitment forever and totally. So, so I would say that faith simply accepting Jesus as Lord would not be true. It's more of a submitting of all of your life. Uh, secondly, I would say another masquerading faith would be the idea of knowledge. Faith is not the same as knowledge. You know, we want to know about the facts of the gospel, no doubt. And many of you do. You know the places and the, and the times and the names and so forth. But there's a difference between belief and knowledge. Knowledge is not so transformational. I can know many things that don't have any impact on me. I can know that it's right to exercise and eat right, but I'd like another Twinkie. I mean, I, I know that. But belief is different. Belief is more committal. It's more conviction. So when I was a kid, we would all stand up every morning before class began, and we'd, we'd, uh, we'd kind of look at the flag in the corner of the room, and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. We would, we would make our pledge to uphold the values of this country. 
And when we gave the Pledge of Allegiance, we didn't put our hand on our heads because we knew it, but we would cover our hearts with it because the heart was the expression of full commitment to uphold the principles of this country. What we're doing is we're really pledging allegiance to Christ. To confess that he is the Lord and that God has raised him from the dead is to commit our full allegiance, our heart, that the, 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 really the personhood is expressed in the heart. It is for Christ and Christ alone. So it isn't simply knowing. If you just know the details of Christ, that is not necessarily an act of saving faith. And then the third counterfeit, I would say, is just this idea that faith has taken on a value in and of itself in our culture. You know, you often hear people say, well, just believe. You just got to believe. Or just have faith, if you just have faith. But what does that mean? I mean, faith is only as good as the object to which it's tethered. You know, if you're out sailing and you throw an anchor, if the anchor doesn't grip something fixed and firm, it's useless. It'll just kind of go along with whatever the current of the water's going. Faith has to grip something. So for faith to save, it has to be in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And that's the kind of faith that saves that for us to understand, uh, the faith that saves, look in verse 10, he says the same thing as 9, but he reverses the order. And he begins with, with the heart, because that's the groundspring of our being. He says in 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. To believe with the heart, well, well Paul's obviously it's more than intellectual assent. Uh, the heart is our person. It is an expression for our being. So to believe in your heart, that means that I, I will forego ever trusting in the works that I've done, the religious person that I've become, the morality that I've attained. Those are all good things. They're evidence of God's spirit in you, but we don't trust in those things to put us in good standing with God. Uh, you may be 99 years old when you die, and you may be a very holy person, but your trust will always be in the work that he has done for me. You may have fruit 10,000 miles long and praise God for it, but that's only in response to what Christ has done. That does not save. Only Christ alone saves. And to believe that in our heart is to rest in Christ and him alone. But notice he says, if you believe in your heart, but you can, in verse 10 he says, with the mouth one confesses. The mouth can only say what the heart believes. Uh, that an authentic faith cannot be a private faith. Uh, you can't privately enjoy the gospel. If you understand what God has done for us in Christ, it has to come out of your mouth. It may not come out with the same boldness that someone else may be able to speak about the gospel, but it has to come out because you treasure them. You talk about what you love, which for many of us, it's usually ourselves. Or it's about a, a father who has a, a newborn child. And look at the pictures and they talk about, we talk about that which we love and the things we treasure. How greatly do we treasure this gospel? You know, by the way, you think upon it and speak about it, meditate on it. And this confession isn't just verbal, it is visual too. I mean, when a person comes to faith in Christ, they're baptized. They're baptized 
into waters, publicly declaring, professing, this is the Christ that I will follow with my life. And then baptism is always tethered to admission in the church. Why? Because you want to be with other people who have been saved by the same Lord, and you know that you have to incubate together, that God grows us up together as a body. So, so here, you know, we repent of our religiosity, repent of this law that each one of us, at one, we're all born trying to perform and obey some law, but we repent of that and we receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, have you done that? It's a good question. Have you repented of your religion and have you received Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, who has suffered under the weight of our sins, been buried, and been raised. Believing in the heart, that you're trusting alone in him, no longer in yourself. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to become a Christian. When our allegiances shift from ourself to one alone, Christ. That can be through a prayer. It can be calling upon the name of the Lord, asking for forgiveness. But that is an integral step. You know, when we looked at, at Romans 9, it was all about God's sovereignty. But now in Romans 10, it's about man's responsibility. We're responsible to do this. This is something that we do, that we respond to God's kind, electing grace by confessing him as Lord and one who has been raised from the dead. Okay, the, then the, what's the next step in salvation? So we repent of our religiosity. We receive Christ as Lord. Then we begin to recognize that, guess what? This is a message for the world. This isn't just, I got saved. This is now a message that goes to the world. Look at 11.13 with me. In 11.13, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what Paul's saying is, this message, you know, we all go in this direction of wanting to somehow think that we have the capacity to please God, we repent of that, and we cling to Christ by faith. We receive him, and then we recognize that this is a message that has to go out. You notice in the verses that I just read to you, four times in three verses, he uses the word everyone or all. He keeps saying it. You see this universal extension that the gospel message is going to go to the nations. It's going to go to the world. He, he says there's no distinction there. What's interesting, that is such good news. It's good news because the only other time you see that phrase in Romans is when he says in chapter 3, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here we are, religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter, we've all fallen short of God's glory, but now God's salvation is going to go to all peoples. It's going to go to all peoples. It doesn't mean that the ethnic distinctions we have are abolished. They're just made irrelevant in God's new society. God's beginning a new work. You know, some people want to go back and think God's going to be doing something with ethnic Israel. But remember in Ephesians last week, he made the two one new man. God's not going to split up this new man and go back to ethnic distinctions. Now the gospel goes to all people, all nations. This is really a word for the church. And, and we're going to hit this next week from 14 to 21. This is a clear word for the church that we are now the ambassadors. Paul was the one who proclaimed the gospel to them, but now we are the ones that are taking this word to the nations. God intends, as you see here, for all the nations to come and call upon the name of the Lord. 
that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship Christ. Now, we know that. You know, if you notice in verse 13 when it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that's a quote from the prophet Joel. Now, when Joel spoke this, he was speaking about Yahweh. He was saying, if all call upon Yahweh. Well, Paul now takes that same verse and he applies it to Christ. He puts Christ in. Now, if Christ wasn't God, then he just snapped the first three commandments right in half. So he's showing to us that Jesus is God. We are to pray to him. Call upon his name. Jesus even said, if you're tired, weary, come to me. I'll give you rest. Jesus is the Savior of which the world is going to worship and enjoy. We're going to see that next week as we consider how can they believe they haven't heard? How can they hear unless someone goes and tells them? And that's us. The ones who have found the treasure of the gospel are the ones that talk graciously, humbly, the treasure of the gospel. So here, this, what Paul's showing us is how do we enter this faith? How do we attain this righteousness? We repent of our religion. We receive Christ by faith. And then we recognize that this message is going to the world. And then we rejoice over all that salvation has for us. Listen, God has things for us in salvation. Salvation isn't a bunch of cherubs on, on kind of clouds with harps. Look at what he says here in 11 to 13. He says, we're looking at verse 10. He says, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. He uses all this different language of salvation. What do you, what rewards come with this salvation? Well, number one would be no judgment. He says that we've been justified. Justified was a, was a word that was used in the court system. So if you were there before a judge and the charges are brought, right, and you're guilty of those charges, to be justified means you're declared innocent. You're declared innocent. You don't face those charges. You're no longer liable to face those charges in the court. You're declared innocent. You, you walk. You now are free. So when Paul says that with the heart one believes and is justified, that means that the sins that you've committed, you don't face the judgment of God. Do you realize what this means? It means that you don't have to fear standing before him. As a Christian, you don't have to fear the sins coming back. You know, we're in this phase now, particularly in our political arena, that 32 years ago, a person said this. Well, gracious, if, if, if that's how we're considered all the time, we don't have to worry about, you know, when they vet a presidential candidate or vice president, you know what they do? They go through the files very thoroughly. What can come back? What can be held against us? We don't have that. Jesus says that if you believe my words in him who sent me, you have eternal life. He says that you have, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You do not come into judgment. That's why Romans 5, when he says that we've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God. We don't have an enemy waiting at the gate. He's a friend. He's a father. So, so the blessings that we receive with the salvation is no judgment. But also look at verse 11. There's no shame. He says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I'm not talking about a psychological kind of shame. I'm talking about the moral shame that comes with the degree and the depth of our sin. Paul's saying that those with faith in Christ will not be put to shame. 
Now let me tease this out a little bit for you. The only other time you see, you know, in Genesis chapter 2, you see Adam and Eve, they are naked and they are unashamed. They're unashamed. There is both a psychological, a spiritual purity, and there's a physical purity that they're not bearing any shame. There was no sin in the garden. So chapter 3 hits, sin enters, and with sin comes shame. How do I know that? Well, because what they do, they began covering up, right? They covered up from God. They hid themselves from God, but they also covered up themselves from each other. There is that embarrassment over their physical nakedness. So there is a relationship between that, that spiritual covering and the physical covering. Now you see Jesus come along, and Jesus is hanging on the cross bearing our sins, but he's hanging naked naked, bearing our sin and the shame. You know how we are. If all of a sudden you're in a dressing room and the door comes flying open, you immediately cover. There's a sense of shame that comes, that shows us what this is true, and yet he's borne all of our shame, all of our secret sins, all those things that if everything we had ever done would be put on a Facebook page, just streaming, all, can you imagine the shame? But he has borne that for us. We don't have to fear. There may be tears when we see him. There may be initially sorrow over his beauty and glory and why had we ignored him. And, and we have the promise that he'll wipe away those tears. As a caring, loving father, he'll, he'll wipe them away. He won't stand at a distance with those arms folded, making sure that you pay your just due for offending him. He comes and wipes away your tears. There is no shame before God. And, and then thirdly, the other third treasure that we have here in salvation, look with me in 12, is these riches. There's no shortage of riches. He, he says there in 12, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. So those who call upon him, we will receive riches. Now what does this mean? Well, I do think it means that he does care for us materially. I think if you, if you think you've generated all that you have, I would just stop and encourage you to consider that, you know, to ask yourself, what do I have that I haven't received? Uh, but besides material riches, I think he's speaking here about, about the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness, the riches of kindness that brought us to repentance, the riches of glory in Romans chapter 9. What does this mean? I can only imagine it means that that day when we see him, we'll be drawn to enjoy his glory with him. We'll be in the very presence of God, be perfect we will be made perfect like the Son. The Son is the only perfect human. We will be like him when we see him and we'll be in the riches of glory with God forever. I mean, let your mind wander. If you can't hold a thought for three seconds, it's going to be hard to draw the joy out of that. But if you can focus on this idea of being with the creator of the universe, but perfected and loved and adopted. I mean, if Bill Gates said, I'm going to share my riches with you, can you imagine what that might mean to you? It might mean cash, it might mean boats, it might mean whatever. The creator of all things will bestow upon you riches. I mean, if you're weary, if you're broken, if you're burdened, if you have just shame on your soul from your past and your sins, this is... This is salvation for you. This is, this is hope 
this is joy. All the people in our life that can disappoint, he will never disappoint you. He won't disappoint. So here, Paul's talking about this great salvation that has been given to us. How do we receive it? How do we receive the salvation? We repent of our godliness, that we tried to somehow achieve a position of righteousness apart from God. These are just self-salvation projects that we've all been on at one point or another. Repent of those, receive the gift of faith, receive the gift of Christ by faith. That means you're trusting, you're foregoing trust in yourself and you're trusting him alone to save. You recognize that this message that we now have will go out to the world. And then we rejoice. We are people who rejoice over the fact that there is no judgment. There is no shame. There is no shortage of riches that will be ours in Christ. He's even giving that to us now in a way of a foretaste when we rejoice with him and we have those moments with God or with one another where we enjoy him. So, so receive this word of hope. Let's take a moment and just silently perhaps confess our sins or even rejoice over these riches. Look back over your life. Recognize that you will never bear shame for those sins. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.